but that really took me sitting down with myself and prioritizing my values because I think what a lot of us don't recognize is that our values inevitably change when we become parents. But if we don't recognize that, if we don't notice it, we don't label it, we don't actually work through what that means, we get stuck on that old version of who we were. Hey everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Entering Motherhood, a podcast dedicated specifically to new moms going through this amazing journey in life. I'm your host, Sarah Bilger, a postpartum nutritional coach slash mechanical engineer. And as always, I'm so excited to be here with you and share all the information I've been lucky enough to obtain since becoming a mom. In this episode, we talk with Zara, a mom who's about to have three under three and is a heart-centered child and family therapist who specifically works with families who have experienced trauma. Hello and welcome to Entering Motherhood. I'm super excited to have you here today and um, listen to you know your personal story and and where you're at now and what you do to help out moms and and you know your experience of being a mother. So uh, go ahead and let us know a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thank you for having me, Sarah. My name is Zara. I am a mama to two boys uh, who I had back to back, as well as a fur baby, uh, currently pregnant with human baby number three, uh, due early in the fall. Um, and in addition to being a busy mama of soon to be three under three, I'm also a heart-centered child and family therapist. I work with children and families that have experienced trauma um, and to help them process that trauma, integrate the past experiences into the future so that they can live the life that they want um, and find the wisdom and the experiences that they have undergone. Um, I also work with mental health, uh, so it's not just trauma. And I'm the founder and the CEO of Kindful Living. So you're going to have three under three. What's what's that feeling like? I don't know. We just jumped into it. Um, I felt like the first two were just basically a, a godsend for one another. They got along so well. They still get along. I mean, they fight here and there, but they have a constant play buddy. And it's been amazing watching them grow together and learn together. So we thought adding one more to the mix couldn't hurt. Um, I'm not sure what that's going to actually be like, but we'll find out pretty soon. Yeah. Do you know what you're having? No, I don't. We always keep it a surprise just because it's one of those few things in life that you can actually be surprised with. Yeah. Yeah. We are kind of the complete opposite. We wanted to know as soon as we could because we feel like, you know, you already have to wait so long like to find out and then and then we like to be prepared. So... It seems my boys are on the same train as you guys because they have been praying for their sister. Aww. And when we when we couldn't confirm if it was a girl or not, they just began referring to the baby as a she. So the baby is a girl as far as they're concerned. Um, we thought we might want to actually find out just so that we could taper their response should it not be a girl. But it'll be a fun surprise for everyone. Yeah, that's so exciting. Do you? Um, so for your first two, you didn't find out either. No, I had a really strong inclination with the first uh, child. I kept having dreams. The second one, I had a dream like a week before he was born that it was a boy, uh, but nothing so far with this one. Oh, do you feel any different? What has it been like so far with this pregnancy? 
exhausting. <laughs> uh, having two toddlers running around all the time and having to take care of them in addition to being pregnant has been really difficult. And this is the first time as we were speaking earlier um, that I've been pregnant in the summer. And it's just like an absolutely out of body experience. Like I have control over nothing. I feel like it's just the heat takes over and I'm constantly uncomfortable. Yeah, that's how it was with Rosie. And uh, she was born in August. So the whole summer I was pregnant and swollen <laughs> and just uh, trying to enjoy it. But since it was like my first time, you, you know, I, I had no idea like if that was how things were going to be or, or not. So this time this baby's due in, in January. So we'll see um, how different the seasons are. So being a mom yourself, how does that help you in what you do? You know, like working with families and children and, and guiding them through all the uh, situations that's gone on. How is being a mother yourself helped with that? Literally a night and day difference I found. I practiced for almost a decade before becoming a mom. And of course, I had all the theory and the knowledge behind what I was supporting my clients with, but I didn't have that lived experience. So looking back at some of the suggestions and recommendations I, ma I made, I just, I laugh because they were not pragmatic. Like having children and doing stuff is one thing and then learning things in a textbook is a whole nother thing. Um, and having had the opportunity to try and test things out with my own boys has really taught me what is and isn't possible. It's also allowed me to have a certain level of compassion for my clients that I don't think I, I had previously. Not to say that I wasn't compassionate, but I don't think I embodied that same extent of compassion, that desire to alleviate suffering in the children that I worked with and the, and the parents, because I didn't understand firsthand how it felt to have a child and to, to watch them going through painful experiences and not knowing what to do. And then, you know, looking out for professional help and expecting someone to make that difference. So I think I take the responsibility that I'm endowed with a lot more seriously. Um, and that's just made me a more compassionate therapist. That's awesome. Yeah. And so specifically, you know, what kind of, of trauma do you work with or, or help families with? The whole gamut, everything from bullying, um, you know, just children that might have disorders that kind of, uh, make them physically appear different or present differently, all the way to traumatic deaths in the family. And so everything, you know, in between there as well, but loss and grief and, and having to kind of process even violence in communities and the impacts that that sometimes has on little people. And then do you work at all specifically with trauma that mothers are going through, like birth trauma or past trauma, PTSD, like coming up in pregnancy and postpartum periods? Yeah, I actually just started that about three years ago. So once I became a mother myself, I would meet mothers um, who would share with me their birth stories and didn't actually understand that from, again, a lived experience, but noticed that there was such a need. So I got some training and, and began working with mothers that had birth trauma, as well as parents who couldn't be the parents that they wanted to be because of their own traumatic experiences that hadn't been processed. Um, that I had actually been doing from the beginning of my career, but again, to a different extent, starting about three years ago. And that came in so handy because when my my second little guy was born, I had the most traumatic uh, birth experience I could imagine. I had a 
placental abruption. And if anyone knows what those are, they usually don't end very well for the baby. Most babies don't survive a placental abruption because the placenta literally comes away from from the mother's body. So that deprives the baby of oxygen. Um, And it was about half an hour that I was bleeding before I had medical care. So everyone had prepared me not to expect my child to have survived. Not only did he survive, but he's thriving and you wouldn't know that he was born prematurely or that he'd gone through any of that. Thank goodness for that. But it was definitely something that required for me to to spend a lot of time working through uh, because all of those emotions and and experiences in that short amount of time uh, definitely had me feeling like I was helpless. And so it was actually quite, you know, timely that I began just a year prior to that working with mothers who had similar experiences because it was so helpful for me to have learned from what I worked through with them, as well as all the the theory and the knowledge that I was able to obtain through the training that I did. Wow, that's awesome that you got to use your own training to help you specifically go through your own traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually quite fortunate. I did rely on other professionals as well, and and I reached out for support when I needed it. Um, And it's still something that I think, I don't think you ever fully get over it. So it's something you're constantly processing. Being pregnant again right now, um, I can't help but have a lot of flashbacks of what if it happens again, because the incidences, you have a higher rate of it happening again once it's happened already. And so using the skills that I that I practice with my clients um, and reminding myself of what I try to instill in them is a godsend really, because it's the only way that I find myself being able to keep myself grounded um, in, in addition to my mindfulness practice. So what are some techniques or basic kind of starting points that you would guide a mom through during those situations? So it really depends for, you know, for parents that mothers that have gone through the experience, um, I use a lot of body based somatic therapies, um, because those modalities have been found to be really helpful. The thing with trauma is, is that as much as it is a cognitive memory, it's not a cognitive experience. Uh, Trauma embeds itself, it imprints itself in our bodies. And so there is always a visceral component. And for a lot of individuals that experience trauma, they go and try the talk therapy and the more traditional methods. And they don't necessarily feel like they're being helped because as much as they can make sense of what's happened, as much as it's possible to, because sometimes things just don't make sense, their body still has that memory. So without kind of releasing that traumatic energy that's stored in our body, it's really difficult to to move on and to not feel constantly disturbed. So I do a lot of somatic-based uh, work with the parents that I work with. But when you've got mothers then who might have anxiety, much like I experienced at the beginning of this pregnancy, because of, of all the worries of not knowing, like, what happened last time? We didn't actually ever get any conclusions, right? Like, why did my placenta just stop functioning the way it was supposed to? Uh, What if it happens again? And so that anxiety, sometimes it's helpful to use cognitive behavioral um, methods. So based on CBT, um, where you kind of look at the, the thoughts that are occupying your mind and try to understand where there are cognitive distortions. Because the, the theory behind CBT is that the thoughts we think influence the, the feelings that we embody. And so if we're able to interrupt the chain of thoughts that make us feel sad or, or helpless or miserable, uh, we're able to have some control over how we feel. That said, it's important to feel how we feel and to acknowledge that our feelings are messages from our body. But when it takes over your ability to get sleep or to have a joyful life, I think it's important to find ways to interrupt those cycles. So CBT is really helpful when it comes to postpartum or even perinatal um, 
anxiety, depression. Uh, I find that that mixed with the more mindfulness-based methods and the somatic methods are, it's a completely like perfect fit because you kind of address all the parts of us being human, the physical, the emotional, the mental, the spiritual. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. Could you kind of uh, dive deep a little bit more in somatic? What exactly does that entail? Yeah, so there's so many different types. Um, there's lens neurofeedback, uh, which is something that's gaining a lot of prominence. There's somatic experiencing based on Peter Levine's work. Um, and then there's there's a whole bunch of different modalities, but they all basically they rely on the idea that we need to access the energy of the trauma that has been uh, embedded in our body. So humans, um, just like any other animal, when we have a, an instinct that we are threatened and we need to sort of react or respond to this instinct, we have very few options. We either fight, we we flight, we run away, or we freeze. And so based on what we're capable of doing in that moment, um, we may or may not be able to complete that defense. So if we're trying to to run away, but we can't run away, there might be energy stored in our legs uh, that needs to kind of release itself. Or if we freeze, then all of those emotions and that experience becomes sort of trapped in our body. So the idea behind somatic work is that we're trying to release that energy so that it's no longer inhibiting our bodies and so that it can't be triggered because it's no longer an active existing part of us. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. So you know, like when you say release energy, is that kind of just moving your body in ways or tapping? Yeah, there's so many different ways. So um, a lot of individuals will use, you know, dance or yoga, but there are more uh, scientifically sort of uh, proven methods. And it's not that those are not scientifically proven, but it's hard to sort of gauge the effectiveness like they work for some individuals they don't for others but there are methods um so eye movement desensitization um is one that has gained a lot of prominence emdr and so with that you're following a light and you're basically allowing yourself to focus on this light while processing your memories and that's thought to help us to no longer fixate on those memories because they find a new way of constituting themselves in our, in our bodies. Um, and then there are some methods that rely on very low energy sort of electricity as well to help again, just sort of move this energy around because we know that um, emotions are energy in motion. So when we experience them, they need to either be fully completed in order for us to sort of process them or they get trapped. So it's when they get trapped that we're trying to find different methods. So it can be through tapping. It can be through low electricity. It can be through light, following the movement of light. Um, but just to basically align the body with the, the therapy that's being used so that you are help, helping the client to release that energetic uh, component. Yeah, that's so interesting. So would you have to kind of be remembering that experience or, you know, kind of like thinking about it while you're doing these? Yeah. And so there's a there's different processes for all these different uh, modalities. But for the most part, you don't necessarily need to talk about it. So that's why a lot of, of clients, especially younger ones, appreciate it because they're not having to relive it with somebody else. They can sort of process it um more independently, and they're able to do that while following the the practitioner's suggestions um, in terms of whatever you know they're they're using as a modality. But 
it's helpful in my experience to not just use the somatic piece is to follow up with the talk piece because most individuals that go through trauma, um, we don't just experience a trauma and then have flashbacks, right? So it's not just a matter of trying to rid ourselves of these triggers. It's actually learning that there's a wisdom in this trauma. Our bodies um, were able to withstand these miracles almost at times. So if we're able to survive through them, then we need to understand what um, has happened and how it's changed us and and also learning how perhaps the trauma influenced behaviors so that we can make that conscientious decision about whether they still serve us and, and finding new ways to cope if they don't serve us. So while the, the somatic methods are really great for helping to release that energy component of the trauma, learning to work through coping habits that may not have functioned for that individual is a whole different story. So that's where actually talking through it and, and finding new ways to cope is, is helpful. Yeah, I agree. And then, so in your experience, you know, obviously, you know, with your placenta uh, abruption and everything, you know, that was a very obvious, this was traumatic, but In a lot of other scenarios, I think mothers will go through a traumatic experience, but not necessarily perceive it as traumatic. So what might be symptoms or kind of um, things that are going on, like you were saying, anxiety and things like that, maybe thinking like, oh, is this going to happen again? What are some symptoms that maybe a mom could be experiencing that is caused by trauma that might be that she might be unaware of? That's a great question. I think what I've learned is that our our symptoms, the way our body exhibits um, that something isn't working the way that it should because of a stressor, they're as unique as we are. So I've seen anything and everything under the sun as a symptom of some sort of dysfunction or a, a maladaptation. But there are your, you know, your classic clinical symptoms. So like an inability to sleep or interrupted sleep, um, appetite, either, you know, having no appetite or having like a constant appetite, uh, mood changes. So those kind of things I think are the mo- more typical symptoms. That said, though, for most women, because of the hormonal changes our body goes through while being pregnant and then after giving birth, um, a lot of women might experience those regardless of whether or not they've experienced trauma. And so trauma isn't about what happens to us. It's not, you know, the placental abruption or the unplanned C-section. It's about how our body responds to that. And so for some individuals, they will go through really traumatic experiences, but because they have the support network to help them, uh, you know, grieve a loss or uh, process that trauma, they're not actually traumatized per se. Um, They've experienced a trauma, but they've made sense of it in ways that hasn't allowed their body to hold on to it. So we don't always just want to assume that when, you know, a placental abruption happens or an emergency C-section happens that a woman has been traumatized. Um, Those are unfortunate experiences for many women, but they may not constitute a trauma. That said, uh, waiting to kind of see how our bodies are responding is for some a good idea because we're not really, you know, they might not be sure that is this just a regular hormonal changes because it takes nine months for our hormones to build up and for our body to, to create this baby and things don't just change right away because the baby is out of us. It takes you know, for some days and weeks and and months, even for the changes in our body to um, get back to a baseline. So a lot of times those changes are just a part of the postpartum period. But for for many women, 
those changes stick around for a long time and they make it really hard for them to be the the type of mother they want to be or the the partner or the sister or the daughter or they're just the person that they want to be and they notice that there are changes that they don't necessarily have as much control over as they would like um, and that's when they seek support because they just notice they're not feeling the way that they used to feel and something is getting in the way of them living the life that they are dreaming of living. And then what would be kind of you know for someone that knows someone that just you know had a baby is in that postpartum period signs for them to like look for questions to maybe like ask them or just conversations to talk to them with if they feel like they might need help or like how would you kind of like approach the situation if you see a mom struggling I think really reflecting that you're you're witnessing that sometimes is really powerful um and really just checking in on the 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 health and the well-being of the mother, because while the, the mother's holding the baby or carrying the baby, you know, all attention's on the mother. And then the minute this baby's born, that uh, attention shifts very quickly to the baby and mothers often get this sense of rejection or abandonment from their loved ones, their family, their friends, because everyone's just all eager to, to spend time with the baby. So really just checking in to see how the mother is doing, um, offering support. I think for, for, a lot of women in my experience, no matter how that conversation is approached, it's not something they're willing to discuss um, with anyone or for a certain amount of time because it takes a lot for them to accept that things aren't the way that they want them to be. So, you know, we may notice signs and we might want to reflect those signs for the, the women that we um, care for in our lives. But I think it's more important to, if we notice those things and if the mother doesn't want to talk, to just provide a sense of support and, and and assurance, right? So like if we're noticing that she's really tired and she might not have the energy to prepare meals or get laundry done, or if she doesn't have help with childcare, offering those things. I think things have shifted so much in our world right now with the pandemic and how that's played out that we haven't been able to support as a community the well-being of, of mothers that have recently birthed children um, because of, of worries of, of contamination and whatnot. So I think we're slowly moving back to normal um, and that will hopefully help the village support the mother and, and you know, her role in, in having this baby a lot more than has been the case for the last couple of years, almost a year and a half at least. And what would you recommend, you know, talking about that village that, you know, building that support system for the mother, you know, like you were saying, that shift kind of occurs and it goes from how's mom, how's she doing, like babies inside of her things, baby comes out. And now, you know, everybody's like, how's baby sleeping? How's this for baby? Like, are they eating okay? And things like that. And like, the mother kind of loses that support. What are some things that a mom can do as she is making that progression into postpartum to ensure that she's setting up that support system, you know, informing people of her wants and needs? Like, what would you kind of recommend to help with the the mental state of, of all those hormones and things that are shifting and occurring? I think, um, Unfortunately, this is something that in, in our society we don't do really well. But if you look at other societies, you look at, you know, um, in Eastern communities, it's like the whole community comes together because they know, you know, women know what other women go through when they have babies. And there are people that are, you know, planning meals or bringing meals or uh, coming and cleaning the house or doing what is needed to be done 
playing with the baby so that the mother can sleep. And so these are things that unfortunately aren't well-established, I think, in Western communities. But I think the onus then is upon the mother and her partner, if there is one there, to to procure the help of the community and ask people to to play their part, right? Because everyone wants to come in and see the baby and do all these things. Well, bring a meal while you're at it or plan to come by and stick around for a load of laundry and just making it a very casual expectation as opposed to making it seem like we're we're using people or we're expecting this from people. I think, you know, what I've learned from different cultures is that this is very normal. This is a very um, expected aspect of the postpartum period. In some in some communities, you know, up to 90 days or a few months after a woman gives birth, the focus is on helping the woman to heal. So she's not expected to run around and run errands and pick up the laundry and do all these things. So helping to create a sense of normalcy around that, I think, um, as much as it would be great for, for women to be able to ask that, sometimes that may not be possible. So expecting partners and other family members to rally the community around this mother um, to help her gain that sense of support so she's able to take care of herself and then by virtue of that do a really good job being the mother as well. Yeah, I think exactly what you're saying, like I can see too. And I think, you know, as a society, it is hard for the mom to ask for that help too. And I think one thing, you know, I wish I prepared a little bit more for that I'm planning on doing differently this time is, you know, explaining to friends and family, like, this is where our laundry room is. This is how we wash our clothes. Because I think originally I didn't want to give up those chores because we have, you know, specific ways of doing things. Or, you know, I wasn't about to be like, oh, yeah, come over and, you know, help clean the house because I didn't want them to like put something away wrong or, or misplace something or clean it wrong. And I think, you know, I have slowly dropped that level of like ex, uh, expectation and kind of like being like, no, you know what, like, if you want to help, like, it's okay. And especially with our first, all I wanted to do was hold her. Like if somebody was like, well, let me hold her, go ahead, like take a nap, take a shower. I was like, no, this is the job I want to do. Like this, like I want to hold my baby. Like, why would I leave her? You know, it's that anxiety again and kind of that paranoia of like, no one can do it better than you. So like why offload those, those chores and those tasks and things like that. So what do you think is kind of going on there and what can help us kind of relieve ourselves of that like sense of control? I think really it's just like you said, right? Um, letting go of expectations and recognizing that, you know, someone might fold the laundry differently or may um, wash it differently, but doesn't change the outcome, which is the laundry gets done and you have clean clothes for your family. And I think, you know, I can totally... Um, it resonates with me what you said about the first child because I was the exact same way. And then, you know, getting pregnant. So like basically just my son was a couple of months old, getting pregnant and getting, you know, morning sickness has struck me uh, insanely, all three pregnancies. And so feeling sick and, and needing someone else to do all the things that I did quickly made it not so important that the laundry was folded a certain way or let's be honest, I'm not a laundry person, but that things were cleaned a certain way or put away a certain way. And so I wouldn't obsess as much because I just, it needed to get done and I didn't care how it got done. So kind of life necessitated it. Um, but if life doesn't necessitate it, I think sitting down and really reflecting upon why we need things to be done the way that we need 
them to be done. For me, that's not something that I did while pregnant. Um, it was actually something that I, I did, you know, in between having children, because I realized that things just weren't going to, it wasn't possible with 24 hours in a day to get the things done that I wanted to get done. I needed to learn how to prioritize. And so you know, I learned from from just necessity again that well, it was more important for me to have my children fed, bathed, happy, um, you know, had their playtime as opposed to having this perfectly clean house. Or that it didn't matter if you know things couldn't get done right away if they weren't things that needed to get done right away. Like I was able to be a little bit more lenient, um, but that really took me sitting down with myself and prioritizing my values because I think what a lot of us don't recognize is that. Our values inevitably change when we become parents, but if we don't recognize that, if we don't notice it, we don't label it, we don't actually work through what that means, we get stuck on that old version of who we were. So for some people, that's a pristine house or making sure their work gets done in quiet silence. And like, once you have children, you know, that just isn't possible. You're going to have to work through the noise and work through the the diapers and the messes and the crying and the tantrums. And, and so for me, you know, just getting used to this new version of myself meant actually labeling what it was that had changed and what I was okay with versus what, what I wasn't okay with. So there are times like right now where I still need the peace and quiet to, to do what I'm doing. So my partner's watching the babies, but if I'm just working regularly now doing invoices or whatever, if there's noise, there's tantrums, I'm just learning to work through it because that expectation of working in silence, as much as it, it worked for the first couple of decades of my life, no longer important to me. So Another piece of what you said in terms of this is where the laundry room is and whatnot, for me, it was maintaining boundaries that mattered, right? So maybe having people in my space, which was a huge thing for me. I didn't want family members um, in our home or in the hospital. Like I really, privacy is something that was really important to me. So while people were more than welcome to come see the baby and help out with certain things, I didn't. I didn't want them to get the sense that they could overstay their welcome simply because I had asked for them to maybe come and bring some food or um, to come and help out with watching the baby for an hour. So I was very clear on those boundaries because I still wanted to maintain a sense of control where it mattered for me. So I think for a lot of, of new mothers, knowing what you need and being able to express that in a way that's, again, compassionate towards others. It's not like, you know, just because you're coming over to do laundry or bringing over a meal that you now are a part of our household. Like, you still don't live here. and so. I need your help, but I have something to do at three. So, you know, we can have a one to three visit and, and that that would be good. I didn't like the idea of being bombarded by family members who just felt like because this baby was there, they could come as they pleased and when they pleased. Um, and so for me, that was something that I learned through trial and error that in opening the doors and allowing people to help me that I still had a say in when and how they helped me. Um, and that helped me gain maintain, I should say, a sense of control where it mattered so that the things that didn't matter, I was able to loosen my boundaries and be a little bit more flexible with. And that helped me remain sane because I think for a lot of new mothers, um, we're just getting used to everything. And even if it's your first baby or your fifth, I don't think it matters. It's every child is different. They, If you're nursing them, they latch differently or they have different cycles and you just want to get to know them. And you don't constantly want people in your space bombarding you with what they think you should do or um, you know, talking about things that you just could care less about as a new mother. Yeah, I definitely think setting up boundaries is is very, very helpful and very key and trying to establish that, you know, before baby comes even and saying, you know, like what you want and and kind of like listing out those things and not being like, 
afraid or ashamed of like how other people are going to perceive that, like be like, look, we don't want anybody like in the house, like staying over from like this time to this time or, or things like that. And really kind of saying your needs and your wants and getting that like across to anybody that's like, quote unquote, like coming over to support you. (laughs) You know, so like, I, I definitely think like boundaries are important. And then going also back to how you were saying that like old version of ourselves and kind of reestablishing now who we are. I think right now specifically, I'm seeing like a lot of people expressing that and saying, I miss who I used to be before kids or like, you know, this transition into motherhood is, is not what I imagined, expected, you know, thought it would be. Um, Do you work with with moms kind of going through that identity shift as well? Most definitely. So the thing that a lot of people, I think, fail to recognize is that when we change as people, so it's not just our bodies that change, right? Our lives change. um, And whether that's through motherhood or through retirement or whatever the case is, as we transition as human beings, as we transform, I should say, the parts of us that we leave behind are parts that we need to grieve, right? So the parts of us that no longer serve us, are a loss. Um, And even if they don't serve us anymore, at one point in our life, they did. And so they were important and valuable to us. And not being able to reconcile some of those changes and some of those losses can result in uh, a lot of resentment and a lot of sadness and and, and anger and and different people that manifest differently. But I think really, um, what I've noticed for a lot of moms is exactly what you said is that, you know, they're not okay with all of the changes. And so I think either, you know, working through it yourself or with a professional, if you're not able to do it yourself is always helpful, because I've worked with various clients, and it's just a few sessions, it's not sometimes a elaborate piece of work, sometimes it is because they realize that there's been many parts of them that they have uh, transformed out of and that they haven't grieved and that they haven't reconciled with who they now are. But it's just a matter of being able to recognize again, what, what about that part of us served us, uh, why it no longer serves us. Or in the case where, you know, with a new mom, maybe who feels that she wasn't ready to give that up, figuring out how some parts of that identity can be maintained, even if they look different. And so for for some moms, you know, that might mean like working out every single day. And maybe that's not possible. You can't go to the gym every day with a newborn. Or maybe you can't work out as as much as you used to right after giving birth because your body is is healing and it's needing you to to be sensitive to that. So it's finding new ways to do that, you know, finding a new a trainer that specializes in in postpartum exercise and recovery or uh, exercising with the baby so that you're not feeling like guilty for leaving the baby to exercise because for a lot of moms it's like I want to exercise but I don't want to leave my baby. Well, then learning how to exercise with the baby is a great way to merge those pieces together. So sometimes it's just about thinking outside of the box, but I definitely think there is an aspect prior to problem solving that requires for the the, the loss of that part to be grieved and mourned and made sense of. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think, I guess like we don't realize that it is a grieving process sometimes. And like, that is what's going on. Like, yes, you just had a baby, you're meant to feel different, you're meant to be in a new state, like, things are not going to be the same. I think I heard a lot like, of, oh, like, it's not going to be any different, like, you're still going to be able to do like everything that you used to, like, now baby's just going to be there, like, don't worry. And like, there's also like, 
some other moms who were like, oh, like somebody told me like, I can't travel anymore because I have a kid. Like, look at me, I'm traveling and doing all these things. So I think like, you know, for some people, you are able to still keep up with some of the activities that you used to do and things like that. But they do need to just look a little different now. And, you know, like there is a whole other human being in the picture now. So it's gonna shift. And I think like you said, like being able to like, problem solve and and work through that and say like, you know, maybe I can't go to the gym by myself. But like, how can I work out, including the baby? Or how can I still accomplish those same things? And I think, yeah, I think just processing that and, and realizing that that needs to be done is a lot in itself sometimes. You know, like what else do you see mothers specifically coming to you for? Like either during pregnancy or very early postpartum, what are some common things that moms are experiencing that maybe they think I'm the only one in this, like nobody else knows how I feel. And you're like, I see this every day. Like, listen, moms are all going through this. I could talk about this for days. Um, there are so many things that women uh, come to my practice for and or send me messages about. And it's like, you know what? You're not the only one. I think two of the main things, though, that I can shed light on that I've been seeing a lot of lately um, are, and this is something that I think is probably, you know, existed since time immemorial, but the relationship changes, right? We say it takes three to four years for that to sort of, for many couples, work back its way up. And so for a lot of women, they are resenting their partners, like out, downright hating them because how can you sleep through the baby crying and I'm here waking up every 10 minutes and don't you hear the baby cry and what's wrong with you? Like you're napping on the couch and I haven't slept in two days and, um, you know, you don't have to be a human feeder and, and all these things. And it's just like, well, Again, it's managing expectations, but also bringing the partner in sometimes to have a conversation about how they can support. Because a lot of times what you what you'll learn from many dads, not all of them, because there are men that are still out there or or partners who think that their role is to kind of be removed from the whole early years, you know, newborn caring, um, caregiving role. But for the most part, it's men that just don't know how to be involved. Like they can't really feed the baby or maybe they don't know how to feed the baby or um, they haven't had a conversation about if the mom wants to nurse, whether she's willing to pump so he can, uh, you know, or they can feed the baby in other ways. So there's so many conversations that just aren't being had because so many assumptions, there's no time for the conversations. And then we're basing all this on assumptions. Um, The relationship takes a big hit. And so for many, many reasons, it's usually a really great idea to seek professional help because then you're having those mediated conversations and it's not just a resentment building on top of resentment. It's There's a chance for there to be a conversation. Um, I said there was two things, but I think maybe I lied. Maybe there's more that I'll touch on. But just briefly, I think another one that I see quite a bit recently um, is just mothers that haven't resolved trauma from their own childhoods, the way that they were parented and finding that their child is triggering them. So, you know, if we, if we were told to shut up by our parents because they, you know, believe that children should be seen, not heard. And then our child is wanting to, to, to cry and, and we're being told to be affectionate and to respond to them. There's a disconnect, right? Because we know that that's not how we were parented. It almost might be triggering for us to have that expectation or to, to know 
based on research that this is what's good for a child. So for a lot of moms, there's that needing to process their own trauma so that it isn't a trigger for them to have to do something that's so antithetical to the way that they were raised themselves. Another thing I often see is that a lot of like cultural clashing between how parents might have been raised in their country of birth and then how things are done here. In Canada, we've, you know, we're a country of, of primarily immigrants. And so it really is a common theme whereby you'll see parents that weren't born here that having to raise their child in a completely different way, um, not being able to maybe stay at home with the child for the first few years of its life. We're really grateful. We've got an 18-month paid maternity or parental leave in Canada. So it's, it's more than I think most countries have. But that said, it's still 18 months. And if you come from a country where you reared your child until they went to school, that's going to feel like a very poor fit. And so for a lot of, of new moms and dads and, and parents in general, that just is a huge issue because they don't want to trust a stranger that they have to pay to take care of their child. Like what's the work? What's the use of working? Some of them will ask to just make money to pay for daycare. Why don't I just stay at home by myself? And and so having that conversation about, you know, the pros and cons and what works for them and what fits for them is sometimes really helpful. Um, and then I think the final thing is just stress. And I think that's something that's consistent for all new parents. Um, and I think it a lot of it is because they feel that there's an expectation that they're just supposed to take it and take it and take it. And if you don't take it, what's wrong with you? Because everyone else is raising kids and dealing with it. Um, but Again, we're not having those conversations about how people are dealing with stress. And so I often find that this is where having a conversation about self-care um, and, and sharing mindfulness practices is invaluable for a lot of new parents because, sure, we don't have time to do the things that we might have taken for granted, going for one-hour walks or uh, you know, having phone calls with loved ones and connecting every day, those things that we take for granted that help us ground ourselves might no longer be available with a newborn. but there are so many practices that can help us to not just connect with our child to decrease the stress in our body, physiologically speaking, but to also get a chance to um, feel like we're releasing some of that stress energy. Um, something as simple as, you know, meditating in a rocking chair for a couple of minutes while holding a baby and smelling the newborn's head. Most people don't know this, but the baby doesn't just has a baby smell because it's something that's nice. There's a physiological reason for that. It's, it's create that smell is, is, Functional. It helps us to actually um, bond with our child. So when we smell our child's head, it releases oxytocin, which is a bonding hormone in our body. And that bonding hormone actually helps to reduce stress and create a sense of, of, of joy and of, of, you know, that warm, fuzzy feeling. So simply smelling your child's head, just taking deep breaths, full belly breaths and smelling your baby's head is like... It's therapeutic. Um, and so it's little things like that, throwing them into your schedule and finding a way to do things again differently. It's not about having to just take stress and then not having an outlet for that stress, but learning how to manage that stress. And then a lot of that is, again, priorities, right? Because if you're doing everything you did before a baby and throwing a baby into the picture, like you said, it's not feasible. It's, a baby isn't just a third person or a fourth or a fifth person joining your family. It's a creature with its entire like a whole bunch of its own needs and I know families out there that say well we just adapted like our child just does everything we do and that's great but that's not the majority of the families I see so if we are going to have to take time and energy and resources to take care of this new baby then we're going to have to put time aside uh, for other things that might not be imminent or as important but then you know finding ways again to adjust 
when the situation allows it. So having a conversation with someone who might not be as invested helps us sometimes to have an objective view of how we're living our life and what can be tweaked to allow for it to be less stressful, um, which, you know, it it benefits not just the parents, but the children as well when parents are relaxed and and able to to be more uh, available for joy and calm in their life. Yeah, I definitely think understanding, you know, that every family dynamic is different, every child is different, and being able to know what works best for your family and understand like how you're functioning uh, is like really important. I think like, you know, that's something that like we learned, like Rosie is, is very simple with some things like going down for for bed and things like that but like there's other things that you know like we have to be like more proactive with or like making sure like she's okay and that's like fitting in with like what we're doing but I think you know that that comparison comes into play with things like that you know you see other people doing this a certain way and you're like well why isn't that working for my child or why isn't that working for our family and like you were saying too, all the cultural differences and things like that and I think understanding like we are all unique we are all different and certain things are going to work for us that won't work for other people and other things are going to work for them that don't work for us vice versa and everything and I think really being able to acknowledge that and understand that might take some time, but I think that's like a huge part of it that like I've kind of learned. But what is, you know, one key takeaway that you'd like to end off with and kind of, you know, give that new mom that piece of advice or words of encouragement that you would really like to just pinpoint on? I think for me, it would have been really helpful if I had been encouraged more to just be mindful of where I was at in my life. Um, and that wasn't just about, you know, uh, the time or the the space, but sort of the intersection of who I am and what has changed in my life um, and and respecting that there are new limitations placed on me. Uh, and that requires for us to listen to our bodies. And I think what I was doing was a lot of what I thought was what I was supposed to do as opposed to what I really wanted to do. And I was lucky because I learned that between my first and my second child. So when the second one was born, I did everything I wanted to do my way. And and I plan on doing the same thing this time. But I think with the first child, there was a lot of expectations of you, you know, you have to let the family visit or you have to attend this gathering, even though your child is just six weeks old. And I was lucky my second one was born like almost right before the the pandemic hit. So I didn't really have to do much. I could just stay at home, which is exactly what I wanted to do with my new baby. Um, but it was really great because I had a chance to follow what my body was was feeling and to respect my own limits and to really um, let my innate wisdom guide me as opposed to letting cultural norms or expectations be what influenced me. So I think I would encourage all new moms, new parents in general, to just listen to their bodies um, and for them to allow their innate wisdom to guide them to be the type of parents that they want to be. I think if we listen to the whispers of our soul and we really pay attention to what they are telling us in moments of when our children are tantruming or crying or unconsolable, we know what our child needs. Um, That is a I think an inherent right to parenthood is, is that connection, is that bond, but it takes a lot of guts to put away the books and, you know, 
put away grandma's advice and to just listen to what our body is telling us. Um, And that doesn't just go for caring for our babies, but that goes for caring for ourselves too. And I think if we're able to truly do that, um, we can be the the best parents that we want to be, but we can also be the best people that we need to be for ourselves. I love that. Yeah. I mean, and that goes back to, you know, like setting boundaries and really advocating for yourself in a way that like you might not be used to, but I think it's very vital when you become a mother. So I love For that. sure. How can we reach you and find you and get in touch with you? Um, I have a website. So it's www.kindfulliving.ca. It's all one word. I also have an Instagram page, which I'm trying to put more and more resources on too. So that's kindful underscore living. Uh, And I also have a Facebook page uh, under kindful living, heart-centered child and family therapy. So lots of ways to reach me. Um, And if you have any questions, you can always email me at info at kindfulliving.ca. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on today and really just sharing your wisdom and and just explaining so much to us. So thank you. You're welcome. It was great talking to you. Well, this wraps up yet another episode of Entering Motherhood. I hope that you have found this episode helpful. And if you liked it, please share it with others who might also benefit from this information. If there's anything that you'd like to know more about, or maybe you know someone who'd like to be on the show, please visit my website, enteringmotherhood.com. I'm so thrilled to be going on this journey with you and getting the amazing opportunity to help moms during this postpartum experience. You can also now find us on Instagram and Facebook at Entering Motherhood.